Hey everyone, what you're about to hear is an interview with Josh and Kevin Crewell, an industry analyst and former AMD employee. This interview was originally published December 10th as a video on our YouTube channel, but we received many requests to also distribute the conversation via our audio podcast feed. Going forward, you'll also find some of our other interviews distributed here alongside our weekly podcast. Be sure to check out PCPro.com for the interview's video version, along with supplemental information and links. Now let's hand it off to Josh and Kevin. Welcome to the PC Perspective Special Edition video. I'm Josh Walworth, and I'm joined with a very, very, very special guest, a friend of mine who I've known for quite a few years and who uh, who every once in a while comes and and drops by the uh, IRC chat uh, during the podcast, and I'll let him introduce himself. Kevin. Oh, taking the easy way out. Hi, I'm Kevin Crewell, Principal Analyst of Terius Research and uh, former Editor-in-Chief for Microprocessor Report and former AMD employee and former NVIDIA employee. Um, I'm a technology analyst, uh, write for a number of publications and consult with a number of companies, write for Forbes.com and EE Times and uh, consult with a lot of the chip guys. But been covering the chip business um, uh, since I left AMD in 1999 as an analyst and then spent a, a brief time as director of market research at NVIDIA. So I, I've had the, the privilege and the honor of working for both those companies. Well, you also had a couple of weeks at 3DFX, right? Ah, the, the, the two weeks I had at 3DFX. <laughs> uh, my, one of my favorite, favorite companies of all time. Unfortunately, um, it's sometimes better to be a fan and work outside the company than actually join the company and find out how completely screwed up they are. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, uh, yeah, it's kind of funny. You got a Canopus Pure 3D. That was that was the card to have if you were a 3D effects enthusiast. Six megabytes of RAM. Six. Everybody else had yeah. four. Everybody, had, yeah, I had the Orchid Righteous 3D. I'd walk back and get it, but it had it had S video and analog output, so you could hook it to your TV set, which I did. Yeah, that was a Jap- Japanese company. Anyway, it is, yeah, it still exists, I believe, in Japan. Yeah, and then there, yeah, but that was that was the card. Uh, it wasn't my first graphics card. I have a Creative Lab cards and some, and then later TNT two cards and that. So, um, but yeah, I was I was a big gamer uh, back in that time, and well, even while, while I was working for AMD, um, we were working yeah. on. I started working on the K five, and then later worked on the K six. But yeah, I just spent okay, so two. The- yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, so the, the point of our video is is to kind of get a little oral history of uh, both of our experiences around the time where uh, K5 was was being introduced and then AMD was moving towards the K6. So we just thought we would go through a little bit of the history of the company. And, and uh, as we were talking a little bit before the show, AMD was started a year after Intel by our favorite guy, W.J. Sanders the the third. Yes, yes, Mr. Uh, Jerry Sanders the third. A bit of a um, outrageous character. Uh, the, the funny thing is, both the founders of Intel and the founders of AMD uh, all worked at Fairchild together. Uh, Jerry Sanders was the sales guy at at Fairchild and was a flashy sales guy, and which uh, kind of annoyed the uh, more button down engineering types that founded Intel. So uh, Jerry and guys like uh, um, uh, the, the Intel founders. Gordon Moore 
And well, especially Andy Grove didn't Andy did not appreciate Jerry Sanders' style. But uh, along the way, the two companies grew doing different products, sometimes competing, sometimes complementing each other. And they had a second source agreement for a number of chips. And IBM, when uh, they chose the x86 processor, the 8088, for the original IBM PC, asked Intel to get a second source. And the reason they got a second source is because back in those days, uh, fabs were unreliable. Uh, every once in a while, a fab would literally lose the formula and, and the yields would crash. And so IBM was concerned about having enough supply. Intel was still not the manufacturing uh, giant it is today. And uh, so they insisted that if they were going to, they wanted Intel to have a second source that they could rely on for an alternative supply in case Intel couldn't manufacture enough chips or had a, a fab problem. And uh, considering the relationship between the two companies, uh, they uh, agreed, Intel, uh, Intel approached AMD and AMD agreed to be a second source. Actually, AMD was already second sourcing the Xilinx Z8000 for you kids from that era um, and uh, had a campaign, the Z8000 is better, blah, blah, blah. It actually was a better chip in many ways. It wasn't as good as 68,000, the Motorola uh, behemoth, but the um, 888 and 886 became hugely successful because of the IBM PC. So AMD agreed to jump into the bandwagon, into the, uh, get, join the bandwagon and, and make an x86 processor. They had done 186s in the past. So they, they, they signed for this, the second source agreement. Um, and then along the way, Intel decided, you know, we fixed our fab problems in terms of we have multiple fabs. We have this copy exact uh, program where they use the same process exactly in both. And they said, you know, we don't, they convinced IBM, we don't need a second source. We can do it all. And so Intel said, you know, AMD, we don't need you anymore. Thanks a lot for playing. And uh, we'll uh, cancel that second source agreement and uh, go, you know, do whatever you want. And AMD said, whoa, 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 whoa. We dropped our Z8000 and we, we, all in on this 886 thing, and you're cutting us out. Oh, we don't, we don't like that. So that led to a whole series of legal battles for, started with the 386, went through the 486, and um, during the whole 486 era, uh, eventually, uh, then they went to Pentium, and AMD decided they needed an independent architecture. That independent architecture was, another prop here, the K5. The K5 was the first independent x86 architecture that AMD created. This is the top of the line, the PR133, uh, which ran at, I think, 78 like megahertz? 78 to 90 megahertz. And yeah, I remember that right, because yeah. it was it was more of a competitor in terms of the architecture of the Pentium Pro at the time, yes. even though it didn't have that, that backside uh, L2 cache that was you know, so stinking expensive uh, from Intel, it was, yeah, you know, it was, it was more efficient than, than the Pentium per, you know, with, 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 in terms of IPC, but they just couldn't clock it all that high. I mean, and this yeah. is the time where they had just started to uh, do like what, 200 millimeter wafers uh, because previously, you know, I think, you know, so the, you look at the 8086 well, stuff. I mean, they were done in wafers that were literally like that big. You'd get yeah, no, there were, maybe yeah. a dozen chips off of them, and 
Yeah. Yields were terrible. Well, well the K, the, the pro, two problems with the K5. One, it didn't scale the high clock speeds. Intel's Pentium, which uh, one person at AMD der- derivatively called the Pentium 2486s bolted together uh, because it was just two pipelines and they really didn't have a whole lot more than two independent 486 pipelines with a, a prefetcher in the middle uh, to, to grab the instructions and feed it to the pipes. So it wasn't very sophisticated, but it could clock the high speeds. What uh, the architect behind the K5, a guy named Mike Johnson, said was, I'll get 30% more performance uh, for the architecture. And we said, right, and we'll, we'll have this. And then he came with this idea called performance ratings so that we got to, to get away from megahertz clocking to talk about performance. The problem with the PR rating and the 30% claims was uh, Mike came from the embedded side. He came from the uh, uh, the embedded side of AMD, and he had done the um, RISC chip that AMD had. Uh, and his idea of 30% was spec, uh, the spec benchmark. Unfortunately, in the, nobody in the PC business back in that day used spec. So when they ran regular benchmarks on it, it didn't do so well. Uh, so there was a problem with that. Uh, and they couldn't clock it much. I think they hit maybe 100. Um, I think there was a PR-166 that was like 100 megahertz or a little over 100. But yeah, they, they fixed the architecture a couple of times, but they still couldn't get, they couldn't get the clock high speeds. And the process wasn't set up to do that. So uh, AMD was really in a, in a bind because Pentium was selling well. Pentium Pro was, was uh, another architecture for workstations. And the Pentium 2 was coming pretty soon. And AMD didn't have anything to compete with the Pentium 2. Well, so, yeah, I mean, they'd kind of been been uh, using a lot of their their uh, what DX4 and DX3 chips, the yeah, the really highly clocked 486s that you know well, they were they were good products for the price, but yeah, they just weren't Pentium type no. performance. Yeah, then the Pentium instructions, the they they were really pretty far behind, uh, but you know, for some things they were good. So. Um, when I was at AMD, so I was a, what they call the field application engineer during the K5 era. And then I got, I, I moved to, from New York to California in 95. And so shortly after moving to California, uh, the uh, next gen group, which uh, I, I actually jumped ahead. Uh, so uh, being in a bind, uh, what AMD decided to do was find another one of these third party x86 vendors. There was Cyrex and uh, a few other guys and and one company was Winship uh, around at that time. Winship was around. Um, Centaur, which was really um, it was still hadn't formed, hadn't shipped the part. Well, they were, I think they were in early stages of shipping, um, but there were a few others. But you know, Cyrex was one of the big ones. And uh, but anyway, there was a company that was struggling called NextGen, and NextGen had a part had a lot of good IPC. Um, it had a, a better scalability. And so AMD bought the company. Turned out it was a big gamble for AMD because AMD had built a fab in Austin, Texas that they needed to fill and K5s weren't selling way near enough. And those little four overclocked 486s were too small to fill the fab. So they needed a good sized chip that could sell in volume, which was going to be the K6. Um, Next Gen ran into problems because Next Gen had a great design, 
where they had a backside L2, but instead of put, you know instead of putting in the cartridge, now here's another here's another flashback. Here's here's the Pentium two, so it had a backside L2 cache, and it was pretty heavy and it was this big clunky package. Well, what, what NextGen had done is put the cache RAM, backside cache RAM on the motherboard. But that means it needed a custom socket that was incompatible with everybody else. But the K5 and then later uh, the K6, AMD used the same socket pinout from the Pentium. So that was in high volume manufacturing, it was cheap, and you can get multiple chipsets to support it. So NextGen was struggling, but they had, they had hired a guy named Vin Dom out of Intel who uh, had gotten pissed off at Intel and quit and Fort Worth, uh, and then joined NextGen. And he just, he convinced the leadership of NextGen to go pin compatible with, with Intel Pentium. So with the NextGen team, uh, the new design group under Greg Favor uh, decided, built the K6. Now, this is actually the K6 3D which uh, was where I wrote the tech manuals for the K6 predated. I, it was already well underway when I joined the group. And here's the, ah, the original K6. Yes, uh, it was the 166. And, uh, you know, we'll, once we start talking about the launch, then we'll, you know, talk about availability, yeah. what was around, some of the yeah. interesting, you know, aspects of that. But go ahead. Yeah. So the K6 launched and uh, finally, and, it was a pretty pretty good part. I mean, it ran uh, as fast as the Pentium. I had the same. Uh, actually, we uh, the original. K, I think the original K six was a sixty six bus, and then we overclocked it to hundred megahertz Pentium bus, which Intel never did because Intel moved to the Pentium two. So the funny thing about what was going on at the industry at the time was Intel was moving to these big modules. These were very expensive to manufacture. You can see that there's a lot. There's a case uh, that came with a fan. Um, the uh, there's a PC the board or inside. And you've got those two really fast SRAM chips. Yeah, on yeah, a what is a 512 bit bus. Yeah. So I, I I haven't taken this one apart. So I, can, I don't know if I can show you, but um, yeah. So this is really expensive to manufacture. Good performance. Really expensive to manufacture. So here comes along AMD. This this chip, it's much cheaper to manufacture, a lot less expensive. The caches are on the motherboard like they did with Pentium. Uh, the manufacturing process, so everybody knows in Pentium, was much cheaper to manufacture and got pretty good performance, not not too far off the, the Pentium 2. Uh, I'll tell you, so, you know, on, on, the, on the, we'll kind of go back a little bit because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more on the consumer side at this time. I wasn't in the industry. I was mm-hmm. starting out uh, some, some initial little websites and I was enthused about uh, computer hardware. And so I read PC world a lot and, and there was a pretty significant buildup uh, about this, this KSX architecture that they were, mm-hmm. I, I forget the code name was, was it sharp tooth or. Ooh, gee, that's a good question. I don't yeah, remember. I can't remember. But, you know, PC World at that time, it was all, you know, Pentium MMX was was the yeah, yeah. big competitor chip. And mm-hmm. there was all this talk about the AMD K6 was was going to be significantly faster in, in pretty much everything. And, of course, we later found out that, you know, the floating point um, performance, while extremely low latency, was was just not as robust as what was the yeah. Pentium MMX and then later with the, the Pentium yeah. 2. But, you know, I remember reading that... Um, um, 
PC World had gotten one of the new Pentium MMXs with the 430TX chipset. And there was a picture of, of the board there, and they circled the two chipset things, and they said, these are specialty chips that are supposed to enhance the MMX functionality of of of, of the, the Pentium MMX CPUs, which, of course, is really funny because that's just the chipset. It's the memory controller. Yeah. It's yeah. I.O. Yeah. And yeah. so it's but, just... It, at that time, I mean, marketing was, I mean, if you think marketing was bad now, I mean, at least there's a lot of information you can look up. Uh, yeah. But, you know, at this time, there wasn't still much of an internet and you couldn't do that. And so uh, there was, you know, a lot of talk. And, and that was when the 430HX was was really the high-end chipset because you could do more than 64 meg, uh, yeah, 64 megabytes of RAM and multiple sockets megabytes it's megabytes back then yeah megabytes i mean i almost caught myself with the gigabytes but no 64 megabytes and so when uh when the amd k6 was was finally released and and the benchmarks came out i mean it was significantly faster and all these integer things with mm-hmm. the penny mmx and i mean yeah. it was just kind of wiping the board and for one month in april of 96 i think it was it was mm-hmm. the fastest x86 processor out there, but then it, you know, it, it fell down on on games and floating point. Well, uh, I remember, it, yeah, I remember I running. Uh, what is it? The uh, MDK. They had a benchmark in there. Oh, you remember? Well, the games had. I remember when games used to have benchmarks built in. That was yeah, that was yeah. Nice. But MDK had the, had a benchmark in there, and it yeah. measured this gaming floating point stuff. And so I had a penny in one thirty three that scored 166 points in that. And then I got a K6 200, and I thought, this thing is just going to roll all over it. And I ran the benchmark, and I ran it twice, and I ran the third time, and it was like 154. And so I was I was a little bummed. But, yeah, I had uh, gotten my first, you know, I kept looking for a K6 233. One, they're really expensive, and you just couldn't you couldn't buy them anywhere. Uh, mm-hmm. They were pretty much, from what I understood, they were pretty much all going to OEMs, and you just could never find one. And there wasn't the retail market mm-hmm. that we have now. I mean, it was, it was a bunch of really, really small sites. Um, you had to go to, like, Tech Data, and and uh, because they only, um, you know, shipped to OEMs, so, you know, just individual customers couldn't couldn't go get those things. And so I was able to get a hold of a K6-200, and the motherboard I had was only, it could only do the split plane voltage to 2.8. It didn't have a 2.9 yeah. setting. However, I got lucky because the K6 200 I have, it worked perfectly fine at, at 2.8. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, the what, the 233, it had a 3.2 volt? Yep. I think. Yeah, we we were stressing those chips pretty hard to get the clock speeds out. And that was actually one of the problems, again, ran into. K5 really topped out around 100 megahertz, really. I mean, those are a very limited number, 118 megahertz parts. And um, the K6 definitely scaled better, the first one. And then they, we improved that to K6 too, uh, a lot more scaling. The, the, what was important for the K6 too was the 3D now instructions. That those were designed to fix the problem with the floating point unit. The reason floating point was so important back then was we didn't have transform and lighting in gra- in the graphics chips. So you you were calculating transform and lighting in the CPU, not in the GPU. So the CPU had a much higher burden 
on it. And that's actually one reason why Quake, what one of the the, the great hacks was uh, the original Celeron, which was a, a Pentium 2. They ripped out the L2 caches and stripped it down. But the thing overclocked like crazy and had a better floating point unit. Uh, the K62 with 3D Now was all designed about fixing the, the gaming performance. And that's why the, the original name for the AMD K6 was the AMD K6 3D processor. And, you know, the, we named it the K6, really named it the K62. Let me get the book in memory. Oh, yeah. Uh, later, but the original name was the AMD K6 3D uh, with the 3D X instruction sets. And that accelerated the graphics performance for games. And we had to do a lot of work to get Microsoft, man, we jumped through hoops to get Microsoft to do a version of DirectX that was accelerated by the 3D Now instructions. That was critical. That was the way we got performance on games was to get DirectX running at, with the 3D Now instructions that could accelerate uh, the, the floating point performance for games. And that was ahead, slightly ahead of Intel's SSE. So 3D now sort of was a nice bridge between MMX and SSE, and it really boosted the performance of games. I actually spent a whole bunch of time uh, in a room at uh, Compute, not Computex, Comdex, uh, demoing a game called Trespasser that turned out to be a complete flop. <laughs> and tres- the cool thing about Trespasser is had it had realistically modeled physics, where if you knocked over a box, it had destructible environments where you, you could break things and you can knock over a box and it would roll down a hill and it would act like you would normally would see in physics. And that was really revolutionary for games back in that era. Uh, unfortunately, the gameplay itself was horrible. It was supposed to be a follow-on to uh, uh, the, the original uh, uh, movies, the um, Jurassic Park Jurassic Park movies, yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, before we heading more into the into the K six, let's okay. let's kind of go back and back. and talk about. It. And I'm curious to hear what you think about this, especially with the the original launch of the K six, and then a month later, mm-hmm. the Pentium two hits the spot. Now, the rumors that I had heard and uh, kind of what the industry buzz was is that Intel knew the K six was coming out, and mm-hmm. they had the Pentium two chips just kind of getting stockpiled in their warehouses, but they were waiting on the 440 LX chipset to give them SD RAM support as well as the brand new AGP support. Mm-hmm. But because AMD was coming out with the K six that they accelerated the release of the chip, but the, the motherboard chipset was not ready yet. So they had to go back to the 440 FX which was an EDO RAM. Now, even though the performance of the Pentium 2 was still very, very good because it was you know, an enhanced Pentium Pro that you know, did much better at 16-bit than <laughs> the previous Pentium Pro did, which got just hammered when you ran 16-bit code on it versus 32. Um, does that kind of jive with what you saw? I mean, what were some of the rumors swirling around there about what Intel was doing to try to get this to market as soon as possible and doing a, you know, cut, cut, cut AMD off at the pass. Well, what happened from, from our perspective was the original Pentium two 
didn't perform well on 16-bit code. And I mean, now we're at 64-bit code, so people who are you know used to 64-bit operating systems, uh, this is a flashback back in, the, back in this era where it was actually important for to still run 16-bit code well, which was uh, pretty much latency uh, DOS type of programs and the original Windows uh, 3.1 and stuff. So 16-bit code was still important at this period of time. And it, the, uh, the original Pentium 2 had a, a bug in it, and it did terrible on 16-bit code. So uh, a number, a, one, a part leaked that was supposed to be just a test part. It wasn't supposed to be a manufacturing part. It was a sample. And somebody tested and pushed, um, published benchmarks uh, and got Intel all in a huff about it. Now, that was Tom Papp's, the original Tom's hardware. And uh, Intel was say, you know, it, was, it wasn't fair to Intel because that wasn't the final part. They had, they had to fix this bug, and I think that was holding up their pipeline as well, is to get the version of the Pentium 2 that had better support for 16-bit code fixed. Um, and so the initial uh, buzz was that the Pentium 2 was going to actually suck on 16-bit code. And that made us really feel good. And, you know, we, we launched K6 and there was Intel was still fighting this uh, perception that the 16-bit code, legacy code, wouldn't do well on a Pentium 2. New code would do great, but old code would do terrible. And so we fought that. Uh, and, you know, we, we relished in that. That was great for us. So, But we sort of underestimated what the Pentium 2 would do in final because we, we saw these early numbers and we didn't realize that there was still a, a fix to be uh, applied to the Pentium 2. But still, from a, from a cost point of view, we still had an, a huge advantage in terms of manufacturing costs uh, compared to the Pentium 2 with the, the big uh, heat sink and big box, um, which forced – and we were still – even after the Pentium 2 launched, we were still doing well selling because we had support from the – uh, the uh, chipset vendors in Taiwan, uh, guys like Via, um, and they were selling, you know, reasonably good chipsets. Although Via had a tendency to spin their chipsets like practically every week, it was like a bug fix a week kind of thing. So yeah, the, it was like, did you don't don't get the A zero version? Wait for the B version. Um, but they were it was a bunch of chips of SIS was another one. Selling chipsets for us, ALI, ALI, yeah, uh, which is uh, Acer Labs. Um, right. So there was a lot of lot of support in that, and so they were cheap, and in a, and and it got reasonable. It still did reasonably well in games, especially when we got the 3D now instructions out. And so we were selling a boatload, and Intel could grab the high end, but we were killing them on the low and mid range. So that's when they developed Acceleron, um, and. You don't know how much everybody made fun of the name Celeron. We kind of we kind of accepted it now, but uh, we were just everybody was making fun of. Even the Intel guys didn't like the brand Celeron. It was like Celery, Celathon. Uh, what is this Celeron? And uh, but basically, they just took the modules, stripped off the the S the backside SRAMs, took off the heat sinks, and um, uh, sold a stripped down module. But it overclocked pretty well, and uh, it had a good floating-point unit, so it did well on Quake, Quake 2, those kind of games that still did a lot of transform and lighting in uh, the, the floating, CPU floating-point unit. 
So, and then so they went to the what the socket 370 at that time. Um, but the what they had to, yeah, I mean, what they had to go with yeah. the socketed with the Celeron. And I remember they had the yeah, the slockets yeah, they, as well, yeah, that would do yes. the you know, yes, take right. you to the 370 to the to the slot one converter. Well, we, we, we were we, we were dragging this uh Pentium socket up to 100 megahertz, and and that was it. I mean. We literally did the timing analysis, and we just barely got it to 100 megahertz. Um, and super, so super seven, super seven socket, super, yep. super seven socket. Uh, and we had a K63 with a on chip backside L L2 cache, but didn't sell a lot of those because it was yeah. a bigger die. L3, yeah, it was an L3. It it didn't it? no, it, no, it was, was L2. It, I'm sorry, it was an L2, but it right. was on chip L2. Yeah, then but then it used the it used the motherboard uh, as an L3 cache as L3. Yeah, but which it didn't sell uh, that remember you did you guys you guys had like a three layer cache that you talked about that was kind of really good for gaming and yeah. you know you outstripped Intel and I okay that was that's a lot of marketing a long time ago. <laughs> oh well, nothing quite as much fun marketing as the PR performance rating and uh, numbers that we uh, uh, that we marketed. And later on, when I was at Microprocessor Report, I had to uh, to uh, play the opposite side of that coin and and. Uh, as myself and Pat Moorhead from uh, was representing AMD on a John Tvorak uh, Silicon Spin show, arguing or debating, I should say, uh, whether megahertz or PR ratings were better. But at least you you, you did kind of get away from the the PR ratings with the the K six, just because I mean you know it ran yeah, at one sixty six and it was very competitive and yeah. faster than the Pentium two uh, two hundred. And two thirty yeah. no two thirty three was the lowest clock. Yeah. So yeah, yeah the, the the so the PR ratings kind of went by the wayside a bit, and yeah, but yeah, you were able to get a lot of clock out of those puppies. Oh yeah, uh, it, it, and I, um, you know, so we we got a lot out of the, the K six. Unfortunately, the K six two was sort of like the end of that line, and but there was a bunch. There was a team working on what became Athlon, and uh, we were racing that to market. And Athlon was going to be a huge step up. Um, when it all said and done, we AMD and Intel finally uh, buried the hatchet um, and signed a cross-license agreement. And the deal was, though, Intel was not going to give us give AMD the Pentium uh, two bus. Therefore, AMD was going to have to get their own bus. One way or the other, and we had run out of steam with the penny, the original Pentium bus in this Super Seven socket. So uh, we licensed a bus called the EV6 bus from Digital Equipment Corp. Uh, deck and was that it the EV6 was, or the EV7? Uh, originally the EV6. EV7 oh. was later. Um, and that bus was designed for expensive workstation processors using Alpha chips. So it required originally it was required like a something in the order of twelve to twenty layer PC board. Now a typical PC board motherboard for for mainstream PCs are somewhere in the order of six to eight layers. Eight is expensive. Six is expensive. If they can get away with four, they would do four layer boards. So to take a bus designed for a workstation that didn't had cost was no option. Uh, object, I should say, and that could do you know sixteen or more layers, and then try to squeeze that into six layers. 
was a, uh, a major engineering feat at AMD at the time. So that, that was like the 98, 99 timeframe. Uh, I was working on the chipset, Iron Gate chipset, tech manual. Uh, that was the AMD chipset. Now, if you guys remember back then in 1999, uh, we were already up to Pentium 3 copper mine. And Intel made the bonehead decision of forcing Rambus, uh, RDRAM, on the industry and saying, oh, if you want to do our chipset, was it, the, was it the 850? Hmm. I remember for the, for the Pentium 3, you have to use RDRAM. Meanwhile, all the Taiwanese guys who were making chipsets said, well, we'll just use regular SDRAM. And they were a lot more cost effective. And for a Pentium 3, there was really no performance benefit to Rambus. Rambus, uh, Intel had shoved Rambus down everybody's throat because they were prepping for the Pentium 4 where they actually really wanted to use RDRAM. And, but they made a strategic decision to get the volume up early with the Pentium 3. But they didn't count on the fact that all the third-party chipset vendors in the Taiwan were going to supply all the, the, the business uh, for Pentium 3s. And you know, Intel was sort of s- stuck trying to sell RDRAMs, and nobody wanted it. Uh, but that also hurt AMD at the time because the guys like VIA and SIS and all so busy making chipsets for Pentium 3, um, they were like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we're going to do a chipset for your Athlon. Um, it's a little bit higher, a little back in the queue. We'll get there. So AMD had to do their own chipset. If you remember back to the K5 and the K6 era, AMD didn't do chipsets. Um, they they relied 100% on uh, the third-party guys out of Taiwan, mostly, to do all the chipsets. It wasn't until... We figured, well, we should do a chipset to support our product because it's new, and we're going to make sure we understand both sides of this EV6 bus. Um, that it became essential that they uh, build their own chipset. But it was AMD went kicking and screaming because they did not want to be in the chipset business, um, and they had, but they had to. Uh, it was the only way to get more out the door. But no, I, I, I do remember. Uh, you know, the boards were expensive at first. Um, Chipset, what expensive? You always use the the Via South Bridge for best performance. Um, yeah, well, that, that was about the only thing we could we could use standard. The North Bridge we had to do uh, to our for our own chip because the bus was unique. And yeah. um, the issue was that the Taiwanese vendors were supposed to do their own North Bridge, and they were behind, and they were busy doing Pentium three bridges and North Bridges and South Bridges, and so. We were kind of stuck. We had to do a chipset for Athlon. And the problem was AMD management didn't want to do chipsets. They didn't do it for the K6. They didn't do it for the K5. They didn't do it for 486s. They didn't want to do chipsets. It, uh, they thought it was a low-margin uh, business that they didn't want to be in. That, that uh, was a business that Intel was making a billion dollars a quarter off of. Yeah, but that's Intel. They were charging yeah. good dollars. You know, if you're, if you're competing with VIA and SIS and ALI, they weren't making a billion dollars off, off chipsets. No. They, were, they were a much tighter margin. So AMD felt they wasn't the margins weren't there. But to get Athlon out the door, you needed a North Bridge. You needed that. In fact, eventually, we the, the South Bridge, we licensed from uh, VIA. And I don't know if we ever manufactured AMD manufactured its cells, probably just manufactured in TSMC 
but they they took a, a full license, so we were officially a second source for that South Bridge. Um, but then uh, the North Bridge had a small design team and had some interesting little performance uh, tweaks. We kind of did a bypass mode that allowed it to do a fast, short um, access, uh, low latency access to the memory. Um, and there were some really good designers on the on the art, from AMD point of view on the chipset. I've gone off to do other other things. Uh, the one guy I kept in contact with, um, he now works for Apple and he's doing AI chips at Apple. So he's an interesting guy. And uh, but that was a just a kind of a starter chipset. The absolute base. We stripped every feature we could that wasn't absolutely essential to the Northbridge just to get it out the door in time with the processor, with the hopes that the Taiwanese vendors would finally jump on board and build the chipsets and take the burden off AMD. But you know, for a long time, AMD still had to do its own chipsets, and now it's not a you know there really is no third party chipset business. It's all proprietary. So whatever processor you get, you give the chipset with it. Because most of the chipset is, you know, aside from the I.O. hubs, have integrated into the CPU. Although now we're disaggregating it again with the uh, Epic and uh, 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 processors and the new AMD chiplet approach. So. Ryzen. Yeah. Yeah. What's old is new again, except now we're doing a multi-chip <laughs> packaging. Yes. Yes. But, uh, yeah, no, I, uh, you know, the, the K6 is really one of the, you know, kind of going back, it was one of the the products that really, truly got me interested in the marketplace and, and, and the mm-hmm. industry. And, you know, I'd heard about AMD before when, uh, especially during this 486 time. So this is back in 92, 93, that, you know, some guys that I lived in, I was a RA in a residence hall. And these two computer science guys both had, you know, 486 DX266s. And they were you know, the fastest machines out there. And each one of those were like four grand. And I was like, how do you guys afford such things as, as college students? But a buddy of mine was, was looking uh, to buy a new computer and he was convinced to get the AMD 486 DX 40, which in many, many ways was about as fast as the 66. Cause you had the faster memory bus going on mm-hmm. there. And uh, you know, just uh, the little, tweaks that, that AMD put in there. I mean, it was a less expensive chip and, and still really, really, really fast. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes it would get kind of glitchy with that 40 megahertz bus speed. Um, but other than that, it was, you know, it, it was yeah. an interesting option to have. And then, you know, the K5, you didn't hear a whole lot about it, but yeah, when, when the K6 was, was being ramped up and, and the marketing started coming out and, and independent, uh, you know, reviews finally were hit and, you know, and it was such a good solid chip. It really cemented AMD's place as, you know, here's Sears and tells the top, but AMD's deck definitely a second tier. And then you got, um, Cyrix, uh, who, you know, is kind of backed by IBM because IBM yeah. had their strain six X eight, six. Oh, uh, what, they yeah, well, what, what the, yeah, uh, Blue Lightning was the nickname. Blue Lightning the, was the fast uh, uh, IBM processor. Yeah, uh, IBM was in the foundry business. In fact, IBM was the original foundry for the K6 um, from next gen and into until uh, the, the um, migrated to the K6 that we sold. But the next gen part 
was all manufactured by IBM. IBM was doing a lot of manufacturing for guys like Cyrix and, uh, and NextGen. So yeah, they, they were, did a bunch of foundry business work. The, uh, yeah, and they, yeah, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you were right. go. we were, we were, um, <laughs> the race was to uh, get a, th- a, to a, down to a thousand dollar PC. You know, the first company, the first uh, processor guy to make, enable a thousand dollar PC, I believe Cyrex uh, actually made it there ahead of us. Uh, but it came, we came close and uh, it was $995 and you kind of forget how expensive PCs were back then. Uh, yeah. When we launched the K6, uh, a whole bunch of the marketing guys, we went out to all the Fry's Electronics, which was the local uh, consumer electronic chain around uh, California. And we went to individual stores and we set up and people came in. One guy came in to buy a K6 system that we were helping sell. And he had $1,000 in cash that he just handed the $100 bills to the cashier and, and you know, 10 of them and then walked out with a, with a system with the K6 in it. And that was like, that was how we were right. It was, it was still amazing to me that, and it was pretty much obsolete shortly after that, but yeah, but, uh, no, I, I remember that because, you know, you buy, buy these pre-built systems and to get a solid pre-built system that would last you two to three years, you would have to pay 2,500 bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I know the, the first one, the first Penny 133 that I bought, I had really scaled down a lot of the build from Quantex. This is back in 1996. Um, yeah. right when the, uh, the Olympics were, were going on, I had ordered it. It was, uh, uh, you know, I had an SDB lightning, no light, light speed 128 with mm-hmm. 2.5 megabytes of MD Ram. Do you remember yeah. that product? Yeah. At all? And, uh, it had a Pentium 133 and uh, something like 16 megs of RAM, and a, I had to cut the hard drive down to 1.3 gig. Yeah. And uh, it came with a 17-inch uh, Trinitron monitor, keyboard, mouse, and that was 2400 bucks shipped. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 they were expensive back then. Yeah, I know. We've, you know, good products, but expensive. Yeah, it's it's really hard to imagine how expensive PCs were back then. Consider what what you can get today for well under a thousand. Get you can get a, a reasonably decent PC for just a few hundred bucks. But, yeah, I mean, I build I, all my desktops. I build my own. I, I don't actually. Uh, only thing I buy are laptops. So if, if I had to buy something, but yeah. So, but you know, the the, the business has changed so much in those you know, past few decades. Um, yeah. But there were a lot of small vendors. That's why there was still a market for the, the small VARs. The third, you know, uh, I, I was supporting in New York a company called Lusky International. And uh, there was another company in, in uh, New Jersey called um, a Fountain Computer. And these were all kind of screwdriver. You know, they'd buy the motherboards in Taiwan. They'd still assemble them in warehouses. And the uh, Lusky guys assembled the warehouses in Queens, New York. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, sell systems. So there was still a market for those guys. They were, you know, there weren't much of ours. They were just, they would make, you know, they would sell some business in, uh, uh, to, uh, you know, schools and other uh, accounts. But there was still a business we made by building uh, small volumes of PCs. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's something else I was going to go off on. Um, oh, what was that? You know, the oh, ramp I, up to. Oh, go did ahead. I mention one of the, it's one other thing. When we talked about the whole uh, Pentium 2 thing, I mean, what, what, the, I don't know, the funniest thing is the Intel guys, when they saw our, that we were still selling K6s and they were still, you know, pretty competitive, and they, they came out with comp- competing, uh, still to compete with the seller. But the other thing is they were all like, we've got to get back into sockets. Because sockets are a lot less expensive to manufacture, and that's that's the, the way we should uh, you know, should build going forward. Meanwhile, at AMD, there was actually a contingent of people saying, "We need to put our K6 into modules so that we compete with Intel in these modules, so they'll know how to plug modules in." And I'm like, "You realize if you put a K6 in a module, it doesn't actually do anything good for the K6." It just adds more expense. And they're like, but 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 Intel is doing these modules. We have to do the same. Like, yeah, it's like it made no sense. So while AMD was like jealous of Intel and modules, Intel was jealous of AMD and sockets. So that's really funny. sockets won. Sockets won. Sockets eventually did win, but they didn't they 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 did take a back seat for a little while. Mm-hmm. Because this Boink. monster. Oh, yes. The K7 with its backside 512k of L2 cache that required a uh, a socket type architecture. And the funny thing about that socket is it's just a slot one, but reversed. Yes. So the load guys, uh, you know, were making a killing on those mm-hmm. sockets. And I remember uh, a funny story. I there was a uh, a local computer dealer downtown and they'd been getting a lot of business and they had hired on some new people. And so um, someone had ordered a, uh, an Intel part and they requested this motherboard and, and uh, you know, some other things. And so I see the guys putting it together and he grabs, instead of a, a K seven, he grabs a Pentium three oh, off no. of uh, the thing and he unwraps it and he, and he tried to plug it in one way, but of course it, it didn't fit. And so he turned it around and he plugged it in and snapped it in. And I'm just watching this guy. I'm like, I've got to stop Ooh. him from powering that thing on because it's, <laughs> it's going to probably ruin a CPU and a motherboard. So I, oh, yeah. I tapped the owner. And I was like, um, look at where the heat sink and fan is facing on that computer. Why? What's wrong with it? like he plugged in the wrong type CPU and the guy's like, oh, would it fit? <laughs> Yeah. So I wonder how yeah. many of those chips ever ever got uh, busted because I, uh, yeah. Oh, I'm yeah, sure. Here's another one. I had tubes sitting around me. What's the deal with that? Wow. It's wow. really funny because that's the uh, the K7M, which is what uh, Ryan Shroud originally had a website about the K7M.com. Oh wow! Oh, old you Ryan know, I, I, over at Intel. Yep that that was about the time I was leaving AMD though, so I was. Uh, heading out, and so I'm an insider at AMD to the analyst uh, side of the business and working for Microsoft Report. Um, but, uh, you know, the K6 was the first, uh, sorry, K7 was the first to hit one gigahertz, I believe. It was. And, uh, it was. Yeah. And they did the interesting things. They they clocked the L2 to one-third speed rather than one-half. And yeah. uh, from, I think, of what, the 750 and above, uh, they had to chop that L3 speed down. So the 800 didn't perform nearly as well. And so it was kind of, and plus you had the different, um, 
you had two different skews that one was uh, one third and one was one half at the same speed, but that's that's getting into strange nitty gritty, and that's before uh, uh, you guys, you know, the AMD had uh, done the L2 cache onto the chip, uh, migrated that again, and and got um, Thunderbird. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think I got one. Is one of the later ones? I believe. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so, no, I wow, that was quite a few years that uh, you were there at AMD when when things were getting very very interesting, and yeah. uh, William J was was really pounding his chest on uh, what his company could do versus uh, Intel, and of course you started to get uh, some interesting anti-competitive uh, practices going on, and yeah, oh well, that was always part of the challenge with working with Intel or working against Intel. Was uh, Intel did not appreciate uh, the uh, competition from AMD, so we were always fighting for you know getting a, you know AMD parts out there. Intel would do everything they can to keep us out of the accounts, um, and you know that was that was uh, Andy Grove uh, only the paranoid survive kind of attitude. He was very aggressive in terms of keeping us out of accounts as much as he could. We were, you know, we were second source to IBM. We, I, I, the time I was at AMD, um, AMD never sold a single x86 CPU. I think to IBM, so we IBM never actually took advantage of that second source agreement at the time. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, that's no money whatsoever to you guys. None, so. no. But you know, the reason if you look at AMD back in that era, um, AMD was a very had a lot of different divisions. We had we had a, a flash memory division. Actually, AMD also was in DRAMs for a while, but then they they got out of that business when Intel did as well. They had we had a networking product division doing Ethernet chips and Wi-Fi chips early on, and uh, uh, fiber token rings. Uh, they had a communications group. They had a programmable logic group. Uh, AMD was a very diversified company back then. And but yeah, what of products. I remember like seeing yeah. AMD UARTs, I think, and and uh, just a bunch of different, yeah. you know, yeah. kind of off the off the kind of beaten path type type chips that you wouldn't expect to see in in yeah. regular PCs, but in other applications, there were a ton of products that you guys had. Yeah, we had embedded risk processing, the the twenty nine K. So. But what happened was, as Jerry Sanders became more and more obsessed with the x86 business, all the other businesses were slowly but surely dying on the vine. Uh, they weren't getting the resources. Everything everything was focused on competing with Intel and getting an x86 to market. And and that became um, his, you know, uh, you know, white whale, so to speak. And that's, it's sort of like, destroyed what was a diversified AMD to solely focus on competing with Intel. So all the other divisions either were shut down or sold off uh, or spun off uh, over the year. And, if, and eventually, uh, even the fab, AMD's fab was spun off to become a global foundries um, after AMD bought ATI and uh, couldn't uh, handle the debt load. And that was post Jerry Sanders, but um, you know the the that obsession just with winning the PC business and winning x86 
uh, permeated AMD to the point where everything else went to the bottom, you know, became secondary. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so odd to think, you know, the older I get, um, you know, in between 1990 and 2005, it seemed like, I mean, things were going so fast and it was, you know, six to eight months, there was something new and interesting out in, in, in technology. And, and you see how AMD and Intel and others, you know, kind of matured and grew as that market got bigger and bigger and bigger and more people were buying computers and everything, you know, the internet explosion. But if you look from 2005 till now, I mean, it's about the same amount of time, but we just didn't see, I mean, we've had Skylake forever. We've only <laughs> just gotten out of kind of the bulldozer stage from, from AMD. It's, uh, you know, it's, well, it's, it was just such a roller coaster from those 15 years from 90 to, yeah. to 2005. And then now it, it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's a mature, slow grinding industry. It seems like. Well, every once in a while, there's a discontinuity. Um, and I think in the case of Intel, it was a bad discontinuity. And that was when they got stuck at 10 nanometer uh, getting ten, oh, so getting ten nanometer out the door, and it was stuck on fourteen nanometer. Uh, you know, I there there was you know, I mean, I, I still you know, it was it was a major movement when it, an Athlon and then Opteron suddenly became the hot topic and a hot product, and then the the guys out of Israel come back with the uh, with higher performing low power, yeah, 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 and so there was there was all that battle, but then. And so it looked like, you know, Intel had won and AMD's bulldozer uh, turned out to be a, a failure from a, from a marketing point of view um, and performance point of view. But, you know, and then, but then Zen came out and had suddenly that, that, that was a complete step function in performance for AMD getting them back to work. It's Intel that's now stuck in a, a rut and they haven't been able to move out of that rut. Uh, they keep adding new instructions, the AVX, the VNNIs, um, but for the mainstream performance point of view, you know, there isn't a whole lot to go on. There's not a lot of big changes there because yeah. we we've been refining this architecture for so long. They're running out of things to tweak out of it to get more performance, <laughs> and in fact, they've tweaked so much stuff out of it. They created security holes, you know, and and that and those those gaps, they you know, like. Like the gaps there, and all these guys are slipping into and finding security holes, and so Intel's got to close those gaps up, and and in the process of closing some of those performance, cuts down performance. So, you know, we're actually running out of what you can do with the architectures, and and still maintain a a reasonable power envelope. Uh, Pentium Four was this hyper pipelined, you know, go for as much clock speed as you get. In fact, one Intel executive at at a private uh, analyst meeting said, yep, we're at three gigahertz now, and next year we'll be at six gigahertz. And I said, you're not really going to be at six gigahertz next year. Yes, I will. Yes, we will. Uh, no, no, you're not. They never got to six gigahertz, with even with the Pentium 4. Um, but it was like pushing the envelope in terms of power. It's 200 plus, you know, 200 watts, and that was just not acceptable. As the market shifted from high-performance desktops to mobile and mobile was all about efficiency, about lower clocks, reasonable clock speeds, uh, and re- and more uh, IPC. And it turned out 
uh, a modified version of the original uh, Pentium II architecture that that the Israeli guys, uh, the Israeli design team at Intel had been refining, turned out to be the savior for the company. First it was Banyas and then later Marone and um, uh, Conroe and all those. So that architecture then became core and it, they're just refining it year after year, but it's, you're not going to see a, a big quantum jump. AMD had a great qu- a quantum jump with Zen because it had fallen behind core and now they needed to get catch up. So it did. Now you're going to see that you're right. I, I think you're going to see a, 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 a period of, you know, relatively slow grinding between the two vendors. We've picked out in terms of how many cores you can slip into a, a PC. Um, it, it, it doesn't quite scale. Even the you know, phones you have, you know, a lot of phones have uh, eight cores, but eight's just a magical number because eight's a, a, a popular number in China. It's it's luckier <laughs> number. And it's some reason I think you have eight core phones. Um, otherwise, there's really no workload that uses eight cores. So we are kind of running out of interesting things to do. Uh, and that's why a lot of the attention shifted to the GPU over the years. The graphics is where there's, I think, a more interesting battle going on. And um, even as for the phones, phones are adding DSPs and, um, uh, it, you know, uh, they have image processors and they have uh, tensor core processors built into, you know, or accelerators for IN phones. You don't see that in PCs yet. You know, you start seeing that, I think, a little bit with Intel's uh, VNNI instructions. Um, but you haven't seen a lot of acceleration for AI functions on PCs yet. So yeah. PCs are actually lagging behind an innovation with the smartphones. So we've got to get more innovation back in. And, and unfortunately, I think part of the problem is Microsoft. Microsoft has, I think, needs to be a little more aggressive and, and has too much legacy. Um, you know, even power management, power management on a on a smartphone is so much better than a power management on a, on a Windows PC. You know, it's, I still, it doesn't quite power it all the way down. You know, I, I it doesn't quite, and that, I think that's one reason uh, Intel has struggled with getting um, uh, longer battery life. It's just that too many things in Windows are just not shutting down when they you need to shut down to save power. It's hard, it's too much legacy stuff, too much uh, PCI Express legacy hanging around, keeping things going and keeping uh, uh, the power going. Plus, a lot of these cell phones have the little cores, and you're yeah. running the really important, you know, OS type threads in a low power, low clock speed as it's just resting. But you know, I, uh, I we could go on for for hours in between yeah. both of us, and uh, you know, maybe you know, maybe maybe again in this next year we can we can kind of explore you know more of the the current stuff between AMD and Intel because we'd love mm-hmm. to. You know, talk about uh, the the multi module philosophy that AMD is doing, and and what Intel is doing, and trying to you know counteract uh, the 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 nanometer advantage that uh, AMD does. But it was great to be able to talk to you about you know a lot of the older stuff. You know where where I kind of cut my teeth and in, in terms of journalism with the K six and and the architectures and the platforms and and uh, just kind of the the odds and ends in between Intel and AMD back in that time when things were. I mean, the gloves were definitely off. Oh yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's a there's a bit of a kinder, gentler uh, competition between AMD and Intel right now. Uh, but back in the era when I was working at AMD and and afterwards, uh, yeah, there were there were there were no gloves involved. They were they were pretty uh, 
pretty brutal in their battles and until the uh the government finally stepped in and sort of settled it out it's like okay you too we need a couple billion for you amd yeah 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 Yeah. so uh you know and and the reality was um having amd around uh kept uh the ftc uh off intel's back for monopolistic practices um uh when when intel wasn't actually uh engaging in monopolistic practices so uh the uh, that that balance they needed somebody else to keep in it. I always thought that Intel missed an opportunity to license x86 officially to third parties. They might have charged a lot, but there would have been an opportunity to expand the range of solutions that you know some that Intel didn't want to do, or they started to do with all these little uh, embedded cores, and then they said, "Yeah, we don't want to do that." And they they got out of that business. Because that's what Intel does. It gets into something, and if it's low margins, it gets out of it again. But there would be a, pl- a ton of companies that would be willing to take a license and build some, you know, relatively small, low-power devices. And you could have made x86 even more pervasive. Right now, ARM is the most pervasive uh, architecture, you know, CPU architecture in the business because it's in all these smartphones and embedded devices. Intel could have licensed x86 and done the same thing. They tell the manufacturing company. What is that? Uh, not not in my backyard, or no? It's uh, yeah, not in my backyard, but uh, not not invented here. Yeah, was, it, it, Intel yeah. was a big not invented here type. Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, they had so. an NIH factor in a big big way. Yeah. Well, Kevin, I really appreciate you spending this hour and some odd minutes with us, uh, and let us uh, you know pick your brain about. Uh, the early nineties and, and mid nineties and late nineties with the uh, AMD yeah. and their K series architectures. So we appreciate you well, dropping by. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate uh, uh, having uh, the time to talk about it. And uh, it's always, it's always fun to reminisce a bit about those days. Um, and uh, hopefully I haven't bored your reader, your listeners uh, uh, too much. Not, not, not too bad. My, so we appreciate And uh, thanks all for listening. And uh, we'll hopefully see you again here soon.